uh, Swansea University Christian Union football team from about 1999-2000. Uh, the eagle-eyed of you might notice a slightly younger, slightly trimmer Nathan Jones in the front row. Uh, I'm the one with the white socks on, for those of you who can't see. Um, but the story that I'm going to tell you this evening actually doesn't concern me very much, but more so the guy two, uh, to the right of me. Um, that's my friend Andy. Um, now, uh, the story takes place in the very next game after this, actually. That was the end of uh, one season, and uh, we began the next season uh, a few months later. Um, it was one of those wonderful, glorious mornings of beginning of seasons often can be. It was unseasonably warm, which unfortunately in Swansea generally means anything above freezing point, but still. Um, we were ready. It was the first game of the South Wales Church League season, and uh, we were ready to go. Um, Andy was one of our better players, uh, but when we got to the ground, um, he hadn't turned up on time. So we got to the changing room, we all got changed, still no Andy. I got to the point where I had to pick a team. Andy would always have been in it, but he wasn't there. Uh, being 2000, he didn't have a mobile phone. He was one of those late adopters who kind of thought that mobile phones were the worst thing that had ever happened and he was never going to get a mobile phone and never be accessible all the time to people and this lasted until about 2003. Uh, but anyway, we couldn't get hold of him. So uh, we came out onto the pitch, uh, picked the team, and as we were warming up, Andy comes running up, red-faced, totally out of breath. Turns out he thought we were meeting at the university campus at 10 o'clock and not the changing rooms at 10 o'clock, and so he'd been waiting for about 15 minutes, realised that nobody was coming, and so had legged it over to the field from there. But it was too late. But he assumed that I would keep his spot on the team open, that I would expected him to have turned up, but obviously that's not really how you run a team. So I told him that he'd been dropped. So he was on the bench, and he looked quite annoyed about this. Um, we started the game, and we started pretty well. We got to half-time, it was one all, and the guy who had come in for Andy was having a really solid game, so he got to half-time, Andy expected to come on, and he didn't. So he got even more angry. And then, about ten minutes later, he spends the whole of the second half warming up, running up and down the touchline, stretching, look at me, I'm ready to come on. And eventually, after about an hour, I make a couple of changes, and one of the people that I bring on is Andy. So Andy comes on, and he's charging around like a 150-mile-per-hour headless chicken. He's charging into tackles. He's chasing everyone. He's chasing everything. He is everywhere. And one of the opposition, a guy called John, didn't take too kindly to this. And about three minutes after Andy had got onto the pitch, John took him out with a terrible tackle from behind. Both feet took him out, kicked him flying. Andy went down, and to be honest, quite appropriately really, got up and said, what was that to this guy who had just fouled him? At which point, John turned around and punched him in the face, knocking out two of his teeth. Blessed are the meek. John was a policeman. He was also a deacon of the church that we were playing under. So we'll leave John and Andy over here for a bit, and maybe come back to them later on. But for now, we should look at this word, meek. Um... What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you think of meek? Uh, I've got a few words, uh, a few descriptions from uh, the internet, and these are the things that uh, people generally talk about. They say it's quiet, it's gentle, mild-mannered, timid, easily imposed upon, you know, these kind of things. Um, or maybe, if you are a little older, um, you might think of this. Gentle Jesus, meek and mild, the old hymn. 
Um, look upon a little child, pity my simplicity, suffer me to come to thee. Or maybe, if you're like me, the first thing you think of when you think of meat is this guy, ex-Welsh international rugby player Nigel Meat. No? Just me. Okay. <laughs> so anyway, let's go back to that list of words then. Um, I think that the church has had a bit of a problem with this verse over the years. And I think it's because of these words. I think that when people read this and they see meekness, they think of somebody who's long-suffering, who's submissive, who's easily imposed upon. And it's a bit of an issue. This is a photo from an Easter advertising campaign run by an organization called the Christian Advertising Network. Um, I don't know if any of you can remember this, but the Christian Advertising Network is a group of marketing and advertising professionals who get together to produce two nationwide adverts every year, one at Easter and one at Christmas. And this was their Easter ad uh, a few years ago, meek, mild, and discover the real Jesus. So the church's advertising network, I think, quite clearly has an issue with Jesus being meek. And you know, I don't think that they're alone. I think the church has often, parts of the church have had an issue with this. Jesus can't be meek. He has to be powerful. He has to be strong. He has to be in control. He has to be a leader calling the shots, in charge. I mean, just look at some of the songs that we sing, like this one. Our God is greater, stronger, higher than any other. And if our God is for us, then who could ever stop us? I mean, don't get me wrong, these statements are biblical and, you know, in the right context can be useful. But I kind of feel like in the context of this song, put together all like that, it's a little bit like the Christian equivalent of my dad is bigger than your dad. My God is bigger than your God. And I think if you boil it down to a micro level, to a personal level, I think some of it comes out of insecurity. I think some people are insecure in their faith, worried about telling their new friends, their new work colleagues they're a Christian because they think they'll get laughed at or put down or thought of as weak or any of those other words that we looked at. Um, I don't know about anybody else, but I've certainly experienced that over the years. I once had a, a job interview um, where the managing director, uh, looking at my CV, said, I see that in the, the hobbies and interests section of your CV, you've written that you're on a church leadership team. Do you really think you'd be strong enough to take a job in the private sector? So obviously I got up and punched him in the face and said, what do you think that was? <laughs> Honestly, I didn't. That was a joke. <laughs> um, but I think that some Christians, particularly some men, to be honest, take it too far the other way. They're desperate to get away from this impression of Christians being meek, being the people who can't get through life without this imaginary fame, this emotional crutch, that they go far too far the other way. Some men, I think, respond by caricaturing their masculinity. Go back to John, who punched Andy, my mate. He was a church deacon and he was a policeman. But he was a real example of the kind of thinking that went into that advertising campaign. He didn't want to appear to be the soft guy, the Christian. He's so soft he can't play in the proper Swansea League, so he has to make do with the South Wales Church League. And his response, like so many others that I played against over the years that I played in that league, was to play far too aggressively. And what happened? He ends up knocking someone's teeth out. And I think it's widespread. Does anyone know who this guy is? Mark Driscoll of Select Insight. Yeah. For those of you who don't know him, he uh, set up a church in Seattle called Mars Hill. Um, it's not the Mars Hill that Rob Bell was involved with.
this is a very different church. Um, he was recently uh, relieved of his position uh, as the lead pastor of this church after a series of allegations from uh, the conduct that he wrote in the way in which he treated his staff were found out to be true. We haven't got time to go into to that in detail at all, but the first time that I came across Mark Driscoll was after an interview he gave to Relevant magazine, uh, a, a magazine in the States, um, uh, where he said this. Some emergent types want to recast Jesus as a limp-wrist hippie in a dress with a lot of product in his head. He drank decaf and made pithy Zen statements about life while shopping for the perfect pair of shoes. In Revelation, Jesus is a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. That is a guy I can worship. I cannot worship a guy I can beat up. Jesus is a pride fighter with a tattoo down his leg, a sword in his hand, and a commitment to make someone bleed. I could not worship a guy I could beat up. Blessed are the meek. Now there's so many things wrong with that Mark Driscoll comment that we could probably plan a whole sermon series around it. But let's just focus on one thing. Let's just focus on the contrast between this idea of meekness, as we've seen it so far, and Driscoll's idea of Jesus. On the one hand, we have gentle Jesus, meek and mild, and on the other, we have a pride fighter with a tattoo, a sword, and a commitment to make someone bleed. So which is it? Well, one of the interesting things about this word meek is that in the whole Bible, only two people are referred to as meek. They are Moses and Jesus, the saviour of the Israelites when they were slaves in Egypt, and the saviour of the world. The only two described as meek. Numbers chapter 12 verse 3. Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. And this is Jesus talking in Matthew 11. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me for I am meek and lowly in heart and ye shall find rest unto your souls. Moses and Jesus. The Messiah and one of the strongest leaders written about in the whole of the Bible. Both described as meek. So maybe it's worth having another look at that word uh, in the context of Matthew 5 and find out what it actually means. Interestingly, the, the Hebrew or Aramaic word that Jesus probably would have said when he gave this Sermon on the Mount and the Greek word that appears in our New Testament have slightly different emphases. Um, the Hebrew word which Jesus would have said is orny and is probably best translated as poor or humble. It has to do with being obedient in accepting um, God's guidance. It's about your vertical relationship as a person, your relationship with God. Uh, but the Greek word which appears is praus, which does translate as meek, but doesn't refer to a person's relationship with God. It, refer it refers to how a person responds and reacts to other people. It's your horizontal relationship. Now, praus is also the word used by Aristotle, the Greek philosopher for the fourth century in uh, Nicomachean Ethics his seminal word on ethics. Now, you can see I've read a great deal of uh, Aristotle just by the way that I pronounce the, uh, <laughs> the thing itself. But um, he talks about it, and he says that it is the virtue of acting halfway between recklessness on one side and cowardice on the other. Very different, isn't it, to what the first two words, um, the, the first two words that we had that described it. Um, a theologian called Kenneth Bailey writes about this in a great book called Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes. And he says, the one who is truly meek is the one who becomes angry on the right grounds 
against the right person in the right manner at the right moment and for the right length of time. The one who is truly meek is the one who becomes angry on the right grounds against the right person in the right manner at the right moment and for the right length of time. Now, I'd argue this is very different to Mark Driscoll's idea of anger and, and his view of Jesus. I mean, I do wonder whether Mark Driscoll has confused Jesus with Mel Gibson's character in Braveheart, actually, but that's probably something we should come back to and not talk about now either. But I think that Kenneth Bailey's quote is a pretty good description of the Jesus that we see in the New Testament, particularly in Matthew 21 and John 2, which both tell a story of Jesus turning over the tables in the temple. Um, we haven't got time to go into the story in detail. I'm sure that many of you will know it well anyway. But the basics are that because people took animals into the temple to sacrifice to God, some people had set up shop in the outer courts of the temple, selling more animals alive and dead than you would ever imagine. Um, this had developed into a corrupt system um, with trading, kind of marketplace atmosphere, deals being struck and people being ripped off when it shouldn't have been there. It had no place being in anywhere near the temple. So Jesus comes in and he's angry, he's upset, he storms into these outer courts. He tells everyone to get out and he throws over the tables of the moneylenders who've been ripping people off. Here's Matthew 21 verses 12 and 13. Jesus entered the temple courts and drove out all who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. Here's the interesting thing. This is the next verse. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. The one who is truly meek is the one who is angry at the right grounds against the right person in the right manner at the right moment and the right length of time. Jesus comes in, he's angry, he's annoyed, he turns over the tables and immediately afterwards he goes back to what he did, healing people. Anger against injustice is a valid response. Not anger to make yourself look big, not anger to justify your own insecurities, but anger against injustice is a valid response. I think it's something we should think about. I've lost count of the number of times that I've heard or read someone say something like this. What you should do if you're looking for a job, if you're looking for a career, is find the thing that you love and then find somebody who will pay you do that. I do think this is a pretty terrible cliche actually. There's some truth in it, but it's a pretty terrible cliche. I think it's almost as bad a cliche as don't dress for the job that you have, dress for the job that you want. Um, actually, I tried this once in an old marketing job, but uh, my boss wasn't very happy when he saw me sat at my desk wearing this. Um, <laughs> I know a joke, obviously. Um, but anyway, if you're trying to work out what career you should go into, work out the thing that you love doing and try and find somebody who will pay you to do it. But I wonder if a better alternative is this. Find the thing you hate. Find the thing you really cannot stand, the thing that makes you really, really mad. And when you find that, spend your life working to end that. This has been a, an important distinction for me, actually. When I graduated from university, I wanted to uh, run an arts venue. That was the idea. <coughs> Excuse me. And I'd done some marketing at university, so I got a job as a marketing assistant in an arts venue. The idea was to kind of work my way up and then 
um, doing the kind of management side of it. But I found that I really enjoyed marketing, and so I stayed that side. Um, I ended up marketing manager of a, a couple of venues and a couple of arts festivals, and I really enjoyed it. It was something that I loved doing, that I had found, and then I'd found someone who would pay me to do it. I got to see bands for a living at one point and all that kind of stuff. But it was never quite enough. It was fun. It was doing something that I loved, but it kind of always felt like there should be something more for me. At the time that I was doing this, Louise, my wife, was a child protection social worker. And often she'd come home from work and I'd say, how was your day? And she'd say something like, oh, it was incredible. We got this anonymous tip off this morning and me and this other girl went out. And we went to this house in, in Swansea and, and we found this terrible, terrible situation. There were four kids. They were being abused. They were being neglected. We managed to get them out of there. We managed to get them out of this home. All they've known is this abuse for all of their life. And we got them out of there and we got them into a home with an incredible foster family. It looks like they're going to take them for a long time. We dropped them off and the kids were beaming. They never smiled like that before in their life. It was the most incredible day. How was your day? And I'd say, I've written three press releases and I thought of something funny to say on Twitter that was retweeted four times. <laughs> now, please, this isn't for everyone and please don't think that what I'm trying to do here is to convince everyone to give up their job and get a, a really difficult social care job. But I think everyone's answer to this question, what is it that annoys you, will find uh, there'll be a different answer for each of us, and that will lead us down different paths, I'm sure. For me, what angered me, what forced the change, and what still angers me is a pretty simple concept, really. It's just inequality. How can it possibly be right that a couple of miles away, literally a couple of miles over there, uh, a property developer has recently sold a penthouse apartment for £80 million, pounds, and yet a couple of hundred yards down that way, we run a food bank that in the last three years has fed 5,000 local people, including 2,000 local children. How can it possibly be that we live in one of the richest areas, in the sixth richest city in the whole world, and yet there are people who live in this area who literally cannot even afford to buy food and put it on the table? That cannot be God's plan. That just cannot be God's plan. So as I finish, what do we do about it? Does God call us to come on a Sunday, nod our head in agreement, maybe sign an online petition every now and again? I don't believe so. I believe that this verse, blessed are the meek, tells us that God's blessing is on those who, as Aristotle said, find that fine line between recklessness and cowardice, who find the thing in their life, in their community, in this world to be righteously angry about. Not Jesus with a sword and the commitment to make someone bleed, but righteously angry angry on the right grounds against the right person in the right manner at the right moment and for the right length of time and yeah like of course that's difficult of course it's hard to know what a proportionate response looks like but maybe this is why we do these things in community maybe this is why when i get angry about inequality i can bring that anger to a community where there are others who say yeah me too me too and someone in that group goes beyond the anger to answer the question, so what are we going to do about this? And then someone else says, let's start up a food bank. And because we set up a food bank, we find that people are coming to us because they can't afford to buy food because they're in debt. And that leads us to set up a debt advice centre where we can help those who are in debt. And when we are in the debt advice centre, 
we end up chatting to people who are in debt with us because they couldn't afford to eat at the end of the month and they put 300 quid off Wonka and now they owe them £4,000 and a bailiff's knocking on the door. So what happens then? We look into setting up a credit union to get these people more responsible credit. And then what happens after that is that we find that these people, some of them, half the issue is the fact that they're not in work and they can't get jobs no matter how hard they try. So we look into setting up a course to help people write CVs and fill in application forms and preparing for interviews better and that kind of thing. And then it's the next thing. And then it's the next thing. And all of this is because some people got angry at inequality. So what is it for you? It might sound odd, but I would love all of us to walk out of here this evening with a real sense of what it is that makes us mad. We're going to finish this evening by taking communion. The reading that we usually use to do this is taken from Paul's first letter to the church in Corinth, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, normally verses 17 to 34. It's the earliest passage which presents the eating of bread and the drinking of wine in the context of a meal known as the Lord's Supper or the Feast of Agape. We read this passage all the time when we do communion. But normally we start halfway through verse 23, and we read on until the end of verse 26. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. But what's interesting is the verses immediately before this. This is verse 20 to 22. So then when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For when you are eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers. As a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this manner. What's happening here is that Paul is referring to the Feast of Agape, this idea of a community meal. When people brought all their food together, they shared the bread, they shared the wine in a community. But what was happening in Corinth is that it would deteriorate into an occasion for showing people how rich you were. You would bring the best food, you'd bring the best wine, and you'd keep it to yourself. You'd be eating your private suppers, as Paul says. So it's this practice that Paul is condemning. It's inequality in what is meant to be a community meal. Paul goes on to say in verse 33 of this chapter, So then, my brothers and sisters, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. Eat together. Share your resources. This is Paul in the midst of explaining a precious sacrament, righteously angry. He explains the problem simply, but he explains it powerfully. He explains it, we could say, with meekness. So to pick things back up to sing a song, I invite you to just come forward and, and take the bread and the wine. And then as you return to your seat, I'm just going to ask that question one more time. What is it that angers you? What is it that stirs your soul into action? And what steps could you take this week to practically do something about that?
as we sing this song, please feel free to come and take bread, take wine, or just be for a while. Feel free to stand and sing if you'd like to. We sing, Who Lifts the Poor? Who lifts the poor and heals the blind? Who trampled death for all mankind? Who stands for all with all? sing that again. Who lifts the poor and heals the blind? Who trampled death for all mankind? Who stands for all with arms stretched? 